Beloved congregation of the Lord, shall we read again in the Gospel of John in chapter 19? And why don't we read the first five verses? The message today will focus especially on verse 2. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. Well, children, I wonder if you've ever been driving in your vehicle with mom and dad and you're on a road trip. You're going someplace with your family and you look out the window and you see there, there's a sign for the highway. You're going to turn onto that highway to get where you want to go. And you look at the sign and there's the number of the highway that you're driving on. But above that number, maybe you see a crown. A crown. That's sort of interesting, isn't it? Why do you think someone put a crown on there? You think maybe it was just to have some decoration, something nice to look at? Well, actually, the crown is really important for our country. You see, our country of Canada is what's called a, a kingdom or a monarchy. That means that the authority of the government is with our queen, Queen Elizabeth II. And the symbol of that authority is found in her crown. So when our queen became queen of Canada, there was a very special ceremony that happened, a very special event. All of the important people came to see it. And what happened was a minister took a great big uh, hat that was made of gold and other jewels and put it on her head. And from that moment, everyone knew that she was the one who had received authority from God to be our queen. That's what that symbol means. And even if uh, people in Canada maybe don't think about it much, the fact that that symbol just keeps on popping up and is so visible in our institutions and history, it reminds us that any authority, and, and especially the authority of something like the government, it doesn't come from men and women. It doesn't come from the people. Ultimately, all authority comes from God. And that ceremony that we were talking about of, of putting the crown on the head, it's, it's called a coronation, a crowning. It's something that goes back to, it seems, the, the most early civilizations of our world. There is coronations going back even to ancient Egypt and civilizations uh, like that. 
But no matter where you look throughout all the history of the world, there has never been a coronation like the one that we have just read about here. Here is one who is called the ruler of the princes of the world, who is called the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And this Lord Jesus, he received a coronation like no other. There he is. He's treated roughly and cruelly by these soldiers. He's beaten. He's scourged. He's mockingly dressed in in a purple garment. And these people, they take the sharp thorns of, of a bush or something like that. They twist it into the shape of a crown and they place it on his head. The crown of thorns. This is something I'm sure we're all very familiar with from the history of the passion and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wonder, have we truly thought about this? Truly thought about what it means? Well, in order to get a, a sense of what it is we can learn about our Savior from uh, his coronation and how that relates to our lives, I'd like to look at verse 2 and as well the surrounding context under this theme, the coronation of the king of heaven. The coronation of the king of heaven. I'd like to show you three things that we see from this coronation. First is the madness of sin. Second, the curse of God. And third is the logic of the kingdom. So we have the madness of sin, the curse of God, and the logic of the kingdom. Well, I think that if we really want to understand the depths of sin, we can certainly turn to many parts of the Bible. It's one of the reasons we read, for example, Exodus chapter 20 every week. In order to know what sin is, we turn to the law and the commandments of God, which reflect his holy character. But as well, there are portions of the Bible in, a, in the historical writings that perhaps impress that even more vividly than merely conveying the information about what God requires. And for me, I think that seeing the suffering that the Lord Jesus experienced at the hands of wicked men, it surely is one of the darkest and most memorable pictures of the sinful hearts of men and women. You see, the seriousness of sin is always relative to the one you are sinning against. To sin against one who is completely innocent, one who is more beautiful than 10,000, one who is the very brightness and glory of his father's person. It is a sin that is unimaginably terrible. To sin against the Lord Jesus is a sin of a great magnitude, especially where we see sin that is so directly disgracing and dishonoring his person. And I'd like 
to notice some of the ways in which Jesus was directly sinned against by the people in this uh, history that we've read in order to reflect upon perhaps areas where we have likewise sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ in order that we would come to see the, the depths of the misery of sin. Well, in the first place, we have the sin of this man, Pontius Pilate. And this man who was appointed as a governor of the Roman Empire over that land of Judea in the days of the Lord Jesus, he has always particularly captivated my attention as I've read and studied the scriptures. I always think back to uh, sitting under my, my father's ministry in an evangelical church where they did things uh, perhaps that I wouldn't, wouldn't do on some occasions. And one of the things that they did was around the Easter season, um, my father would actually dress up as a character of the Bible history from uh, the life and the death of Jesus and would address the congregation as that person. So on one occasion, he dressed as Pontius Pilate, and he was dressed in a, a toga and a laurel wreath, and, and he spoke with, with great passion about the anguish that he experienced in his conscience as he sought and failed to save the Lord Jesus Christ from his enemies. And I remember after uh, listening to, uh, to that very memorable history and, and presentation that the night following I woke up in the middle of the night weeping and, and went to my dad and, and told him that I couldn't sleep because all I could think about was how that man was in hell 2,000 years after committing such horrible sins against the Savior. It affected me because I think as you look at Pontius Pilate, you come to see how utterly human he is when he's confronted with the Lord Jesus and how grievously all of us are capable of sinning in like manner. What a sad man this is. He's a politician. He's a pragmatist. He's out for number one himself. And all of a sudden, in the midst of, I'm sure, a, a very busy and stressful life as a politician, Jesus Christ comes across his path. These hypocritical Jewish uh, religious people, which wouldn't even come close to him because they wanted to remain ceremonially pure for the Passover, they had no problem with trying to get him to do their dirty work. They had it out for the Lord Jesus. And so they insisted that Pilate execute this man. So Pilate speaks to him and, and tries to figure out what all this is about. And, and there's this line of questioning. Are you a king then? As his enemies had, had said. And, and Jesus did testify of his kingship. He testified it was for this cause he was born and came into the world to testify of the truth. Well, good Jesus was to speak to this man so uh, frankly about himself and his mission as, as the Messiah, and yet Pilate will have nothing of him. 
He just replies, what is truth? An expression of despair and cynicism. And he, you know, as it's pretty clear that he doesn't want to go through with this. He sees that this is a man who's done nothing wrong. So in his own wisdom, through his own human wisdom, he, he comes up with it. He thinks is the, the best way to deal with this. Certainly he doesn't want to, to actually uh, have a confrontation with these people, the Jews. He doesn't actually want to just release this innocent man. So instead what he does is he says, well, you know, it's a, it's a custom. We always release a prisoner on the Passover. So he, he presents this proposal to the people. Will you let me release this, your king, on, on this day of the Passover? And they say, no, we'd rather have Barabbas, the thug, the murderer, the criminal. So that didn't work. And, and does he give up? No, he, he, he has another plan. He thinks, well, I'm, this is an innocent man, but these people are out for blood. I know what I'll do. I'll just let my soldiers rough him up a bit. I'll let them flog him. I'll let them beat him. And then when the people see how much he's suffered, then, then they'll be moved in their hearts and their wrath will be appeased. And, and most importantly, I can keep my job. Of course, it, it doesn't work. You can see how he's continuing to protest. I find no fault with him. I find no fault with him. And so according to even his own standard of justice, what would follow, that he ought to be released. But rather, what he does is he proceeds down this path and he finds himself pressured into carrying out this evil deed. And I don't know about you, but even today, even not only as a child, but also today, I find myself haunted by this picture of Pontius Pilate. Because like him, I can so easily find myself excusing compromises when it comes to the honor and the rights of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to truly stand for the honor of Christ and the rights of Christ in a world that is so hostile to him, it will mean paying a cost. But our minds are such that when that point where that cost will come, that a temptation is going to be finding some kind of man-made excuse, man-made thinking for why it is that we don't actually have to go down that road. Yes, we can have a sort of partial allegiance to Christ. We find no fault with him. But to actually stand for him, when that will mean even serious financial, personal, or other forms of penalty that would even mean laying down your life. The question would be, are we such that are willing to pay that cost? We see how the madness of sin, it drives Pilate into this desperate and sad end of compromising every standard of justice. But we also see in the the madness of sin under this heading, the sin of these soldiers. 
these soldiers. And there's some dispute among interpreters about what exactly is going on here. Was, was everything that they did really instructed to them by Pontius Pilate? Did he tell them exactly what they needed to do, that they indeed needed to not only uh, scourge him, but as well humiliate him through this dreadful ceremony? However it was, they certainly participated in the sin of the scorners, of sinful ridicule against the Lord Jesus Christ. They hatched this plan. Well, here is this man that we must uh, rough up a bit before the people. We have to humiliate him in some way. So, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to attack the very heart of his message. He claimed to be a king. So what is it we're going to do? Let's, let's have a little bit of a game, a little bit of a farce, if you will. Let's dress him up in a purple uh, outfit. Let's go over to that thorn bush and, and take those, those sharp, sharp thorns and twist them into the shape of a crown. And in the, the place of a, of a royal crown of gold and jewels, let's, let's force that crown of thorns into his head. Not only imposing pain and agony upon his body, but as well torturing his soul by holding him out as a great big joke for the ridicule of all to see. It's a terrifying thing to sit in the seat of scoffers. To be those who in the face of what is holy and right and good, especially the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and to treat him as a great big joke. But look further at what we see here. We have here the sort of joining together of false honor and cruel hatred. With their lips they say, they say Hail, King of the Jews. And with their fists they smite him over and over what a connection. On the one hand, praising and honoring the true king of the Jews with the lips, but with a heart of hatred and ridicule, and joining them with terrible, sinful acts against the Lord Jesus. That is what I wager is one of the more terrifying things to contemplate. Those who would praise the Lord Jesus with their lips, they would be capable of coming into a place like this and singing psalms of praise unto the Lord Jesus Christ. They would be capable of confessing him before a congregation, confessing faith in him. They would be capable of even uttering prayer when it is called for, and yet with their hearts there is no love for him. There is no loyalty or devotion to him. And indeed, with their actions, they live in such a way as to communicate hatred and rebellion against him. 
How terrifying that is to contemplate congregation, to come into a place like this one day of the week, and yet throughout the rest of the week, in terms of what you look at with your eyes, what you speak with your mouth, how you actually live in your family or in your work, it is totally unchristian. And in that sense, is a betrayal and an offense to the Lord Jesus Christ. God save us from the hypocritical religion of the scoffer who makes a joke out of religion by uttering true things with their lips while living totally contrary to what they profess. It's a kind of madness, a sort of insane uh, picture that we have here. But in the third place under this heading, we have the sin of the Jews, don't we? We ought not to pass over that. And as you see here, it's, it's a, a grisly thing to contemplate. These Jewish leaders who were commissioned as the leaders of the church of the old covenant, together with those who are following them, they are out for blood. They are so seething with rage that even when Pontius Pilate brings before them the Lord Jesus Christ and, and pitifully motions towards him and says, Behold the man. Not a, an animal, but a man like you. Surely not even a king according to your reckoning, but surely a man. Have you no pity? Have you no compassion in your souls for a fellow human being at least? So blind with rage are they that they cry out all the more, crucify him, crucify him. According to our law, he deserves to die because he made himself the son of God. Perhaps the most chilling of all, the church of God in that day crying out, we have no king but Caesar. Chilling words to contemplate coming from the covenant people of God. And if we would say that Pilate committed the sin of great injustice, of if these, these soldiers were cruel mockers, then we have to say that the sin of the apostate Jewish church is in a way all the greater. I'm reminded of what the apostle wrote about in the book of Hebrews Chapter 6, he warns about the sin of apostasy, forsaking the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's some of the most terrifying words in the whole Bible. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. It shows just how far someone can go and still fall short of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Here are those who had the, the word of God, who had 
faithful preaching, who even had some of those common operations of the Holy Spirit, such that they felt a kind of conviction for sin. They felt some kind of attraction towards the Lord Jesus. And yet, and yet they turned their backs on it all. And they counted the very blood of Jesus Christ as a common thing to be despised. And their betrayal was such that it was like crucifying unto themselves the Son of God afresh. And so when you see this crowd of these old covenant um, people crying out for the blood of Jesus Christ, let us not think that that is not a sin that can be committed in our own day. And let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall to betray the gospel of Jesus Christ, even after having some kind of external connection to him, is a sin that is very great. What a terrible, insane picture of sin we have here, congregation. But I'm so encouraged that when I look at this grisly scene, they are at the center of it is the true focus of our attention. It is the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus, as I believe we read last Lord's Day, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, as this very gospel writer testifies, when they came to take him with their mere human might, a mere word from him, I am he, was enough to make them fall to the ground. What does that tell you? That this mighty son of God, he is not one who has been overpowered whatsoever. Everything that he suffers now at the hands of these wicked sinners, it is voluntary. Out of condescending love, he voluntarily subjects himself to this grisly coronation. So we have to pay close attention. What is it? Not that being done to the Lord Jesus, but what is it that he is doing? What is it that he is receiving? What is his intention in all this? Look there at verse 2 again. And the soldiers plated a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Children, I wonder if you remember about... What happened to our father, Adam? You remember that story, don't you? Don't you remember that there was one really important rule that God gave to Adam when he created him in that garden? Saying there was one thing that you must never do. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what happened? Did, did Adam obey that commandment from the Lord? No, no, he did not. And what do we read in the book of Genesis in chapter 3 that God said to him after Adam had eaten of that tree of the garden? Well, God came down and he spoke to Adam in this way. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. Let's listen to what God said there. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. 
In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. We have here the explanation about what we're to think about when we see those thorns. Thorns, you see, those those sharp um, branches on the bush that, that will prick your finger and cut your skin. They were not part of God's original design. What brought that about? It was the curse. The curse that was in response to sin. The sin of Adam is what brought death and suffering and agony into this world. It's that reason that the ground brings forth thorns and thistles. That ground from which Adam was created. That ground to which Adam will return in death. Physical death which is the sign of spiritual death, separation from God. Do you not see how how in these thorns and in this crown of thorns there is something being said here by God and by the Lord Jesus himself? That there is something rich in biblical symbolism and spiritual meaning. Jesus, at this point, he is being wrapped in the curse of sin. He is being wrapped in the agonies of sin. He receives the crown of thorns, picturing that his kingdom is a kingdom of suffering and death because he is taking unto himself the curse and the punishment that sinners like you and I deserve. Reminded of what it says in Romans chapter 5. Through one man's sin, all became sinners. So through one man's obedience, many become righteous. You see, Jesus Christ, he is the second Adam. He is the greater Adam. He is the mediator of God's people. Such that he bears the curse. He bears the wrath of God. He bears the sin and the punishment for sin of his people. This is what is happening, congregation. Not for his own sake, but for the sake of sinners like you does Jesus submit to this dreadful crown. And so when we see what it is that he experiences in the way of agony being rejected by these Roman soldiers and these Jewish uh, people, Yes, we can think about what was going on in his heart, how it was that he was experiencing agony, suffering under the hands of the very sorts of people for whom he would die, but also suffering under the hand of his father. This is what the text of the Bible here leads us to, the depths of Christ's suffering for sinners. And O congregation, if you would but see this afresh, you believer, it was for you that he bore this crown of thorns. Can you come to understand something of the seriousness of your sin? It was never the case that God could just overlook your sin. He couldn't just wink at it or or disregard it. No, it must 
be dealt with. Rather than it go unpunished, he punished it in his son. So not only must you be be in such awe and wonder and thankfulness, believer, for what Jesus has done for you, but you must regard sin as your enemy. You must see it as no light thing to fall into even the least sin because you have no right to add to the sufferings and agonies of your Savior. There we see not only the madness of sin, but the curse of God. In the third and last place, I think we ought to reflect about, a bit about the logic of the kingdom. You see, here is the great irony that we see in this passage. That while the enemies of the Lord intended this whole scene for the Lord's destruction, in fact, they are furthering the purposes and the plans of God to establish his kingdom. You remember how when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, that was the thing he just could never understand. Are you a king then? You who are surrendered into my power? You whose followers won't even fight for you? Well, Jesus says, yes, I am indeed a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Notice he didn't say, my kingdom is not in this world. He didn't say, my kingdom doesn't have implications for this world. What he said is, my kingdom is not of this world. It comes from another source, another place. This kingdom comes from above. It comes from heaven. It follows the logic of heaven. It is the power of heaven. It is the purity and the holiness of heaven. It is eternal like heaven is eternal. But especially the logic of it. It operates totally contrary to human designs for power and politics. What is the logic of the political um, governments of our day? It's, It's based on compromise. It's based on pragmatism. It's based on worldly wisdom. And of course, it's based upon getting ahead, using your own ingenuity in order to exercise power over those weaker than yourself. But here is a far different kingdom. A kingdom whose king willingly suffers, willingly humbles himself, willingly bears the curse in the place of his people. It is through this, a scandalous sight, a king who wears a crown of thorns. This logic, this wisdom is greater than the wisdom of man, though it appears foolishness to the thinking of this world, yet it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. So not only is and an utterly different uh, in terms of the king, but also the subjects as well. And for this, I'd like to bring you uh, earlier on in John's gospel, in the 12th chapter, where Jesus tells us something about his kingdom, and especially in connection with his death, which he predicted in chapter 12, beginning at verse 23. And I think there's a very important lesson for us to hear from Jesus' words here. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat shall fall, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So here you have Jesus sort of explaining the logic of his kingdom. The logic which Pilate and these soldiers and and these Jewish leaders could not understand. He speaks of the the rationale of a, a seed. A seed has a certain kind of existence. You look at it. And it has a certain shape, a certain texture, a certain kind of life. And, and you put it into the ground. And, and in a way, it's kind of the death of the seed. It's passing into a, a greater existence, a fuller existence. It's blossoming into a, an actual plant. One of a far greater glory. And so Jesus is saying, this is like my kingdom. It is necessary that I suffer and die in order of the far greater glory of my gospel, Christ crucified for sinners should penetrate to the furthest ends of the world and sinners should be saved through my work. But you notice how he connects that with also the followers, with also the subjects of his kingdom. He says, he that loveth his life shall lose it and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. He says that of his servants, of his followers. He says, do not think, do not think that where Jesus would bear the crown of thorns, do not think where he would receive the scorn and the attacks of this sinful, hateful world, that you can follow Jesus and not receive such things as well. Do not think that you can have a life of a Christian that is on flowery beds of ease and, and sort of sleepwalk your way into heaven. No. No, God has one son without sin, but he has no sons or daughters without suffering. Indeed, anyone who would follow after Christ must die to self, must take up their cross, and they must follow him in the way that he walked, in the way that he received the scorn and the hatred of this present evil age, in the way that he endured all kinds of, kinds of mockery and even persecution unto death, so also the followers of Jesus Christ must be prepared for the same. And I wonder, is it a message that our our generation is prepared to hear? Is it one that our church is prepared to hear? That to truly be a follower of Jesus Christ, to truly have an interest in his kingdom, is to take up the death march. That is the logic of the kingdom congregation where we see Jesus receiving that crown of thorns. Let us not despise whatever crown of thorns the the world would have in store for us. And no matter what suffering, no matter what affliction God would appoint for us, 
Let us remember that it is the Lord Jesus who has borne the greater weight and the greater burden and the greater suffering by far. And where he has suffered for our salvation, shall we not willingly suffer for his glory? O oh, congregation, here we have a coronation like none other. Does it not hold forth to you that this is a king unlike any other king? And for that reason, there is hope for sinners like us. If Jesus would submit to the crown of thorns, he will certainly receive any sinner who comes unto him in repentance and faith. He did this for the salvation of men and women and boys and girls. He did it out of love. Let us therefore come unto him. Let us repent of the sin. Let us believe upon his name. And let us know the 